Okay, boys, are you ready? Yeah. Bedtime story, Adventure, 2018. Chapter 15. As bad as it was that he wasn't allowed into the museum, James's annoyance quickly wore off on the way down to the beach. It was downhill the whole way, and he started to run, finding it almost fun jumping the piles of rubbish strewn across the street. The smell around Seven Dials was becoming unbearable. People had even stacked bin bags in a big heap in the middle of the roundabout. After he turned right past Montpelier Crescent and started down toward the sea, the odour started to fade until, when he reached the seafront road, it was completely replaced by the clean, salty smell carried off a stiff breeze from the sea. The sun was already below the horizon, but there was enough light in the sky to see the old West Pier. It was just a blackened iron skeleton of a structure, most of which was a hundred metres from the shore at high tide. But now the tide was low, and it looked like you could almost walk out and touch it. Standing on the pavement, James was still twenty feet above the promenade. On his left was the tall observation tower, the I-360, a giant doughnut on a stick. Its last viewing of the day was slowly creeping back down to the ground. He took the steps next to the I-360 quickly, eager to use the last of the day's light. Right in front of the tower, on the pebbly beach, were six giant stanchions, three pairs of rusty metal pillars rising out of the stones in a line to the sea. They used to support the West Pier as it joined up with the pavement. Now they just served as hangouts for birds. Seagulls mainly. But on the far pillar nearest the water was a bird James didn't recognise. He jogged across the promenade and onto the pebbles. They crunched under his feet and he slowed to a walk. The beach was deserted as far as he could see from the power station in the west to the palace pier in the east. It was growing darker and the wind, along with clean air, brought a biting cold to James's face. He moved more cautiously and slowly, approaching the pillar with the bird. When he was ten feet away, it stretched its wings out and looked almost like a dragon for a moment. Worried that it was going to fly away, James quickly said, "'Excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you, but are you a cormorant?' The bird refolded its wings and looked down at James from the top of the pillar. Yes, boy, the bird said. Its voice was smooth, not harsh like a seagull's. I was told that you know something about the rats, what they're up to. Have you seen anything strange? What they're up to is their business, the cormorant said, and I've not seen anything unusual. But I have heard some very strange things recently. Down on the sea bed terrible clanging and banging, and rat noises. The rats are in the sea, James said. I thought they hated water. Oh, they're not in the water. They're under it. They're scrabbling in old pipes. And a long way out, too. I've dived for fish out near those spin poles, and heard rat voices echoing around the place. The cormorant pointed a wing out to sea toward the blinking red lights of the wind farm. It was at least eight miles offshore. How could the rats possibly be doing something all the way out there? I'm not the expert. Old Joe is, the cormorant said. He's been a-watching them more than me, and he can dive deeper than me out there. But he won't come near the shore. He's too careful about keeping his spot on the pier.
Thanks, James said. Do you think you could ask old Joe for me? Now why would I do that, human child? Oh, I don't know. But when the rats are up to something, it's usually bad for everyone, not just humans. The bird said nothing. And if there's anything you need, you know, from the human world, I might be able to help. Could you take that big viewing pole down? The bird said sarcastically. Or stop the fishermen from using their silly lines to catch my fish? It opened its wings, hopped off the stanchion, and a few big beats later was halfway out to the old pier. With the tide so low, James almost thought about wading all the way out to see if he could speak to old Joe himself. But it was windy and cold, and the sea did not look very inviting. He turned away and went up the beach to check out the gallery. To the west of the viewing pole were a dozen or so shops, built into arches that went under the pavement above. One of them had a red sign that said Brighton Photography on it. James walked over for a closer look. The lights were on, and it was open with a few customers inside. James went in and took a look around. The whole gallery was one space, with photographs in frames on the walls and hanging from the ceiling too. Most of the photos were of the Sussex Downs. He wandered around, pretending to look at the pictures, while trying to get a view of the computer and the toilet. There was a counter that separated the little area of the gallery away from the public. Behind the counter was a huge printer, bigger than any that James had ever seen, slowly churning out a big picture of the old West Pier. The picture had been taken from behind the pier, and had the viewing pole, the tall I-360, in the background. There was also a computer on the desk. As far as James could see, it looked normal. Need a hand with anything? The man behind the counter said. Uh, no thanks, James said. Did you take that picture from a boat? No, the man said. I swam out there to get lower in the water. Bit cold, though. You think it was worth it? James nodded. To the left of the counter was a door. It must be the toilet. It had a rack with pictures of trees in front of it. As much as James wanted to look inside, he had something else on his mind. Yeah, I like it, James said. It's good to see the old pier up close. Not too close, the man said. There's plenty of it still underwater. Gotta be careful when you're swimming. James nodded and left the gallery. They'd have to find a way of getting a good look around on their own. Hugo's map had shown three electrical substations with sideways S marks near the pier. One of them was back towards Dyke Road on the edge of a grassy square opposite the I-360. He had a little while before he had to go back to the museum and wanted to test something out. He crossed the seafront road and found the substation in the square. He'd picked this one because on Google Maps it had bushes next to it. He quickly found the S mark, scratched low onto a wooden post that held the metal fence in place. Then, with about 15 minutes to spare before heading back to the museum, he sat down to do some fishing. James's idea was to try and lure a rat out for questioning. Before he left home that morning, he'd found various cables and wires from around the house. A couple of power extension leads, a kettle lead from an old kettle in the utility room, and some old guitar leads of his dad's. He had bundled them into his bag for this very purpose. He took out one of the extension leads and left the plug end out by the wooden gatepost. 
Then he crept behind a bush and held tight to the other end. There was a good chance it wouldn't work, but no harm in trying. For the next few minutes, nothing happened. James expected this as there were still some other people walking across the square. He sat as still and quietly as possible, only concentrating on keeping a good grip on the cable. After nine minutes, he was ready to quit and catch up with the rest of the gang. Then he heard voices. His lordship wants his damn pronto, said the first voice. And we've only just got the run sorted underneath. This one's a pain, another voice complained. They rerouted the conduit through the underground car park. There's a foot of concrete to get through. What's that? The first voice cut in. His lordship's paying plenty for cables. Leave it, the second voice said. We don't have time. Look, with Christmas coming up, I need all the cash I can get. I can take it to the engineers later when we're done. James swallowed and held on tight. A moment later, he felt a tug on the cable. Then a stronger one. Give us a hand, the first voice said. It must be caught in a bush. Before the second voice could join in, James stood up and stepped out from behind the bush. Right in front of him were two rats. Each of them was wearing overalls and carrying a toolbox, and one of them was holding the end of the plug attached to the other end of his cable. Blimey, the second voice said. You caught a fish, a landfish. The first voice dropped the plug. I've got more, James said quickly, holding his bag out so they could see the cables inside. They're yours if you just answer a question or two. What sort of questions? the first voice said. Oh, nothing hard. Start with this one. What are you doing with the electrical substations? Don't say anything, the second rat said. Let's get out of here. What's he going to do? the first rat said, eyes fixed on the cables. He's only a kid. We're just doing a bit of work before they turn the Christmas lights on at the clock tower. Now be a good kid and throw those cables here. Why do you need these cables? What are the engineers doing with them? Enough, the second rat said. I don't like this. Who's going to find out? The kid's not going to tell anyone. We're repurposing them, making a big, long, fat cable that can take a big old load. Hand them over. Last one and they're yours. James put his hand into the bag and grabbed a fistful of wires and cables. What are you doing at the wind farm? What do you think the big cable's for? Now give them here. James threw the cables and the rat grabbed them and wrapped them over his shoulder. Don't forget to watch the Christmas lights come on. It's going to be a big surprise. The two rats wriggled under the door to the substation. A moment later, James heard the creak and clang of a metal door opening and closing. He swung his bag onto his back and set off back to the museum. He saw the black car from a long way off, parked outside the museum. It was still five minutes before closing time, and the car was the last thing he wanted to see. When he was a hundred yards away, and confident that he was still far enough away not to be seen, the big man got out and went up the steps to the museum. He was followed quickly by the wolf, who took the steps in one big bound. He hoped that Jenny, Hugo and Elf were not inside, but he had a very bad feeling that his friends were in terrible danger. <laughs>